This choir podcast is brought to you by the story of Christianity told as good news for all. I'm Rick Machuga, and I'm a Christian. When I was young, I thought there were two classes of people, those who were saved because they freely chose to believe, and those who were damned because they freely rejected God. In middle age, I still thought there were two classes of people, the saved and the damned. Only now, I thought in terms of God's sovereign right to do whatever he damn well pleased. Now I'm old, and I still believe there are two classes of people. First, there are those who are saved, and they already know it. Second, there are those who are saved. It's just that they don't yet know it. A few weeks ago in church, we sang about the reckless love of God. How it chases me down, fights till I'm found, saves the 99. This song, this chorus, perfectly sums up my little book, the story of Christianity told as good news for all. You can get it at Amazon today, and thanks for listening. Hey, this is Kevin Max, you know, the singer. And uh, if you love Jesus and stimulating theology, you're going to love this episode of Second Cup with Keith. Hello and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I am your host, Keith Giles. And we, uh, in this episode, are going to talk about something slightly controversial. Hopefully it's not too difficult or scary for you. Of course, if it is, you can pause the podcast or go listen to another episode of Second Cup with Keith. And I'm not joking, honestly. I mean, I kind of am, but I'm kind of not. Um, because this topic is something, for example, we cover this in, in my square one class. And the very first time we came to this subject in square one, it comes around week five. I actually had a lady drop. She dropped, uh, she dropped out of square one. This was too much for her and she was deconstructing, but this right here was something she hadn't really started to deconstruct yet. And it was probably my fault. Uh, I'll just, I'll just take the blame. You know, I think I maybe was pushing her a little farther than she was ready at the moment. And I don't ever want to do that. Uh, and I hope this podcast isn't sort of triggering, um, you know, I, in other words, deconstruction is hard enough at your own pace without somebody sort of artificially introducing things that really rock your world and make you say, what? So I hope this podcast, a little warning here, disclaimer at the beginning, portions of this episode might be triggering or uh, invoke uh, accelerated deconstruction uh, on behalf of some listeners. Uh, for that, we are preemptively sorry, and um, you've been warned. Okay, so here we go. Uh, the topic is sort of the evolving Christology of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Well, um, so here's the thing. It, it takes you a while to notice it, I think, especially if you've been raised, you know, in uh, you kind of grew up in evangelical Christian circles, as I did, um, and even as someone who is licensed and ordained as a pastor uh, in in the church, we tend to act as if the four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—were um, all written with the intention of you know harmonizing each of these Gospels with one another, so that everybody's story, all four of them, all four Gospel writers are all telling the same story the same way without any contradictions or confusions. But 
if you look hard and study, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you will notice is um, that those authors, and we believe that most of them were aware of each other. Now, they were written at different times, obviously, but but the, in other words, the point is that the later gospel writers were aware of the other gospels that existed. Um, that's number one. So they weren't writing these gospels in a vacuum. The the authors of Matthew and Luke were aware of Mark's gospel, and um, that's why you they're called synoptics because much of those gospels share some of the same kind of sayings of Jesus. That's why, by the way, they also we believe that there was something called the Q document which was a collection of the sayings of Jesus. I've mentioned this, I think, when we did the episode on the Gospel of Thomas. Um, but anyway, um, that yeah, the, the shared sayings between Mark and Matthew and Luke are so similar, we, we're pretty sure all three of them were sort of copying the sayings of Jesus, at least, from the same source. That's the Q source. But even so, even though that is what was happening, we're pretty sure, um, because of that, because of the similarities between Mark and Matthew and Luke, at the same time, there is no attempt by the authors of Matthew or Luke to make their stories agree with each other. Uh, not at all, actually, because Matthew and Luke are radically different. In fact, if you try to study the chronology of the life of Jesus using Matthew, if you if you did a study and just wrote down an outline, according to Matthew, of the order of the events in the life of Jesus. If you have time, that might be a fun thing for you to do, or at least interesting. But I'm just going to tell you what you would find anyway. So, spoiler. What you would find is that you would you would come up with a sequence of events, right? From the birth of Jesus straight through to the end, right? The, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then post-resurrection appearances, right? And then then what you should do is go over to Luke and then write down the sequence of events in Luke and notice how radically different they really are. Um, not just events, but even, again, even if, even though the sayings of Jesus are uh, almost identical in Mark and Matthew and Luke, the events in Matthew and Luke are quite intentionally out of order. And they don't sync up. They don't line up. And again, that's not an accident. I think it's actually intentional. In other words, what you end up with is, you know, a gospel. One of one of the four gospel writers sits down to write their gospel. They're aware that there are other gospels out there, and they make absolutely no attempt to harmonize their gospel with any of the existing ones that are already out there. Uh, it's really as if the, the gospel writer is sitting down and saying, you know what, I'm going to tell you what really happened. Or or maybe at minimum, what they're going to say is, what, what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish is, I'm going to tell you what happened, but I'm going to emphasize certain things in certain ways. Uh, I'm going to play kind of Mr. Potato Head and uh, with some of the order of the events. Um, if he says, you know, yeah, we're using the same sayings of Jesus, but I'm going to have Jesus say this particular saying to this group of people whereas the other gospel writers would have Jesus saying the same thing, but in a different time and a different order of events, and maybe even to a different group of people. Um, and again, those are intentional. Those are not accidental. Um, and so so when you notice that, and by the way, when you when you get to the Gospel of John, which is the, the latest of all four of the Gospels, the, the author of the Gospel of John was 
absolutely aware of Mark and Matthew and Luke's Gospels, and then completely ignores all three of them and says, I'm going to tell you a completely different story. I'm not going to mention any of the things, almost almost none of the things, other than the, the baptism and the uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, maybe uh, clearing the temple uh, and all that, but but very, very few. And then he's also not going to quote the same one. He's going to add in a whole bunch of quotes that Mark and Matthew and Luke never, ever mention. And so again, the author of the Gospel of John could care less about harmonizing his gospel with Mark and Matthew and Luke. And uh, again, he had an opportunity to do so and made a conscious decision that he was not going to do that. So uh, that's number one. I think, again, the way I was raised to think about the Gospels, I was trained, especially when I got into apologetics in college, um, I was really trained, and, and sometimes you have to strain really hard to make all four Gospels agree. But they don't on many points, on a many specific points, right? Like Bart Ehrman loves to point out the fact that um, he likes to ask the question, where did Jesus tell the disciples to wait for him, you know, after the crucifixion, you know, and, and when, when he would appear to them? Well, uh, in one gospel, he says Jerusalem, and in the other one, he says Galilee. That's uh, right there. Uh, well, okay, which is it? You've got all the other ones, you know, the sort of the things like how many people uh, were at the tomb when Jesus resurrected, and were they men or women? And the answer is yes. Sometimes it's women, sometimes it's one woman, sometimes it's uh, uh, one one guy, sometimes it's a couple of guys. And then how many angels were there? Well, none, or there was Jesus, or there was one angel, or there were two. Again, those kinds of details change, and and they they are they change because the that gospel writer is trying to tell their version of the story of Jesus. They're not attempting at all to harmonize. So why do I go into all that? That's really not what this episode is about. What this episode is about is the evolving Christology. But I first need to address the fact that we have four different uh, stories of Jesus, four different gospel accounts, number one. Okay, so that's what I'm establishing now. Number two, the reason I establish that is is that that now that you can sort of separate Mark from Matthew and then Luke and then John, okay? And that's okay to do, right? I think we've talked about this before that, you know, Jewish uh, rabbis and scholars have no problem with their own Hebrew scriptures recognizing the fact that the Hebrew scriptures are not a univocal text. It's, it's, it's not a single text. It's multiple, you know, perspectives. And they celebrate that. They celebrate the fact that Moses sees God this way, but Amos sees God the other way, and Isaiah sees God a different way, and Jeremiah sees God in another way, and David sees God in another way, and all of those things are valuable and 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 uh, you know honored. It's 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 not a problem for them. They're not looking to make all of these Old Testament prophets agree about everything. They they understand that they don't, and that's okay. Christians are the ones that have this problem needing to to artificially smooth everything out and make everything agree. So anyway, the point is, and this is this is the point <laughs> I'm finally getting to is that when you look at the way Mark talks about Jesus, as far as like who was Jesus, 
let, let's put it this way. If all you had, let's say you knew nothing about Jesus, okay? Um, you were raised in another land. You weren't raised in Christianity. You never seen a movie. You never watched The Passion of the Christ. Never been to church. Um, and anyway, somebody gave you the Gospel of Mark. And if you read the Gospel of Mark and only the Gospel of Mark, um, then you would you would have a different idea of who Jesus was than someone who uh, had only read the Gospel of John. The person who read the Gospel of John, if you ask that person, hey, who was Jesus? They will say, well, Jesus was the Word uh, of God who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and who became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and, uh, and the person who read the Gospel of Mark would say, where are you getting that? What? No, 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 no. You know, the guy who read the Gospel of Mark would say, no, Jesus was um, the son of Mary, and Joseph was his, you know, stepfather, I guess, and his, uh, was a carpenter. And, um, gosh, I don't even know if they would necessarily say he was a stepfather. Again, I think that idea of that might even come later. That's a good question. Anyway, the, the point is, in the Gospel of Mark, if all you read was the Gospel of Mark, you would probably come away with the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. And you might, you might think maybe he was, maybe he was the Son of God. Uh, it's Matthew and Luke that take it a bit farther and are a little more confident that Jesus is the Son of God. But when you get to the Gospel of John, um, that's when you come up with this idea that, oh no, Jesus absolutely is pre-existent, you know, the Logos of God, Christ was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us and uh, and now dwells within each of us and all that. You know, that that God even, that Jesus even was with God and created all things. I mean, that that's as far as it goes in John. And again, you don't, in the Gospel of Mark, you don't have any verses that suggest that Jesus pre-existed with the Father before all space and time and was was there when God created the heavens and the earth. That's not in the Gospel of Mark. So roughly, and these dates are not exact because there's a lot of scholars do not agree on dating of the Gospels, right? But just in general, and for the purpose of this podcast, um, the Gospel of Mark, they believe, was sort of late 50s, like AD 50. Um, Mark and Luke, I'm sorry, Mark was late 50s. Matthew and Luke, um, kind of in the late 60s. And then the Gospel of John came in the late 80s. Okay, so that's one, I think that's a probably a majority view of the dating of the Gospels. Although I've seen them, I've seen them with different dates. But again, for the purpose of this podcast, uh, Mark is written in the late 50s, uh, Matthew and Luke in the late 60s, and then John in the late 80s. Okay, so you can see there's also a progression of these ideas of the identity of Jesus that early Christians probably for the most part thought about Jesus the way Mark did in the late 50s and as it's reflected in his gospel and then that that um that I, those ideas of who Jesus was the identity of Jesus got a little more confident in in the late 60s with Matthew and Luke but by the late 80s like a roughly 30 years after that by the time we get to the gospel of John Jesus has gone from being the Messiah to the Son of God to 
the God, the, you know, the, the second person of the Trinity almost. Although the, the concept of Trinity isn't in the Gospel of John, but man, you would never have come up with the Gospel of the, the Trinity without the Gospel of John, right? Because John absolutely identifies Jesus as being the Christ who was with and was God and pre-existed with, with God uh, before the beginning. Okay. So I just want to point out that, like that there was an evolving Christology. Now I don't, I don't point out um, that the Christology and the identity of Jesus was something that developed over a period of time, 30 or 40 years. Uh, I don't point that out to say therefore that um that it's wrong or that it's made up or that oh well you know because in the beginning you know with within the gospel of mark anyway uh no one really seems to be talking about jesus like he's the logos of god or, you know who is with god so therefore you know because that because that developed because those ideas developed later they're not as legitimate i'm not saying that okay because I think there's plenty of things within Christianity um, that absolutely developed over time. In fact, even within the Gospels themselves, um, and certainly between, let's say, the Gospel of Luke and, and the Book of Acts, which is a great example, because we, we, we think that the Gospel, uh, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke is the same guy that wrote Acts, right? So first Luke writes his Gospel in the late 60s, and then later writes the book of Acts, and then you can see a progression of, from the disciples of how, you know, their understanding also evolves. I mean, early on, they think that Jesus is just a guy, a rabbi. They call him rabbi. Later on, because of the miracles and things that happen, they start to think, well, maybe he could be the Messiah. And then even later, of course, after the resurrection, um, they're now talking a little differently that this could be the Son of God, whatever that might have meant to them. But no, none of the disciples started off thinking, hey, this is the Son of God. I think I'm going to be his disciple, right? Those things came over time. Um, but many other things did as well, right? I mean, Jesus, how many times in the Gospels, in all three of the Gospels, does Jesus tell the disciples, I am going to be crucified? And they never got it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And then suddenly, oh, they got it, right? Um, so there's a there's a pattern established in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that um, Jesus said certain things and taught certain things and did certain things that initially the disciples couldn't make sense of. They didn't get it. It took them a while to figure it out. I think one of the biggest examples to me of that kind of a thing is with Peter. Um, because again, you see examples and again, I think all three gospels, uh, has Jesus talking this way where Jesus, um, how many different ways does he have to say it? Right. Jesus goes out of his way to visit the Samaritan woman, right. And shares the gospel with her. And then, um, he goes out of his way to honor and bless the uh, Roman centurion who's a Gentile and says, I've never seen greater faith in all of Israel than I see in this Gentile. Um, then we, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, right? And he, in his hometown, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he sits down and says, oh, by the way, a reminder um, that all these blessings of promises of God's jubilee blessing upon the people of Israel 
Um, he says, well, by the way, uh, it's not just for you. It's also for the Syrians and the Romans and, uh, you know, Phoenicians and all these Gentiles. And then they get angry and want to kill them. So, so Jesus established a pattern and many other ways he did this, um, that the gospel wasn't only for, uh, the Jewish people, right? And we have in, uh, at least I think one of the gospels, uh, at the end, right? Where, Jesus says he sends the disciples out to preach the good news of the kingdom to the world, to everyone, right? To the ends of the earth, to all creatures, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Not just Israel. Like he says at first, uh, in one place he says, you know, uh, that you were sent first to Israel, but then to everybody else. So it's embedded in, it's the, it's assumed that not just Israel, but anybody who will listen, Jew or Gentile, right? So, I mean, if you're reading the four Gospels, you you should catch on to that, right? Hey, I, Jesus seems to be saying that this Gospel message is not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles or and anybody and everybody. And yet, uh, it's pretty deep into the book of Acts. I mean, this is after the Spirit of God has been, quote-unquote, poured out on all flesh, everybody, that Peter has to have this sort of vision three times, three times, where God gives him a vision of the unclean animals and says, kill and eat. And each time Peter says, no, Lord, I will not do such a thing. I've never done this in my whole life. I will never do it. And then it ends with uh, the Spirit of God saying to Peter, do not call something unclean that I have said is clean. And again, he finally gets it. Ah, and then he has to you know, then he realizes, has his big epiphany. Hey, everybody, did you know the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles? I mean, it's just like I could just, I could just imagine the other disciples sort of uh, hiding their faces in their hands and going, uh, well, duh. Yeah. In fact, you know what? I'm not sure. I can't look it up while I'm right now recording this, but I, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure. And now I want to look it up. Um, but, um, you know, in the book of Acts, you've got these examples of Philip, um, going and preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. They're all, they're all, uh, they all receive the gospel. And then some of the other disciples have to go up there and, uh, sort of lay hands on them so they'll receive the Holy Spirit or something like that. So, you know, some of the disciples did get it and they didn't need a big epiphany. Peter did. So again, all of this to say, there are plenty of examples um, in the Gospels of the disciples taking a little extra time to fully grasp lots of stuff about the Gospel, about the Kingdom, about Jesus and who, is, who he was. And even once they understood that, to work it out. Like, okay, wait a minute. So if he's God, how did that happen? What's that all about? Like, you know, then then they have to think through what's this whole incarnation thing, and then what are the implications of that? So, um, the point is there is this evolving Christology of Jesus, and I think that's it shouldn't be scary to you, number one, because it is it's right there. I'm not making this up. This isn't it shouldn't be scary to you. It's 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 something that's really kind of right there in the middle of uh, of the Gospels. Um, as you look through it. Again, we may not notice it. I think most of us don't notice it because we were kind of told, we were told that the Gospels all agreed. And so therefore, if I read something in John, 
it's sort of like a flat gospel reading, right? We, we had an episode, I think our very first episode, we talked about the difference between reading the Bible as a flat Bible versus reading it through a Jesus-centric lens. So um, this is sort of looking at the Gospels not as a flat, not as flat Gospels, because the four Gospels do not have this automatic agreement. They do disagree on certain things. And again, because you can see chronologically, that's what's helpful about it. Early on in Mark, they don't have this advanced Christology. You know, um, Matthew and Luke, okay, they're they're getting there. They're starting to they're starting to think a little deeper about this and and, and wrestle through these implications of, of well then what does it mean? Who who is Jesus and what was going on there? And then by the by the time you get to the Gospel of John, it's like absolutely full on, okay, I'll tell you who he is. He is God in the flesh. Um, and by the way, this also continues beyond the gospels. Um I, I, I remember noticing this probably around the same time I guess I, I uh, noticed this in the Gospels, but uh, started noticing, yeah, that, in fact, it used to drive me crazy. I used to try to figure out why, what was going on, you know, because because you do notice, uh, at least I noticed, that um, they, they had a certain way of thinking about who Jesus was and Mark and Matthew and Luke, right? And then you have this big jump with the Gospel of John straight up to Jesus is, you know, one with the Father and uh, pre-existent and a co-creator uh, and all that. And it's like, how did they get there? How did that, how did that jump happen? Um, and then you see it continuing, like it continues on with in Philippians and, and Ephesians and Colossians, where, you know, where Paul now starts developing those ideas. Now, again, now that's, that may be pseudo-Paul, right? We, I know we've talked about this before, too. That, that Colossians and Ephesians um, most likely were not written by Paul. So, you know, but, but maybe it may have been written by one of Paul's disciples. And that in itself is interesting. That, but that could be. There is this idea, and uh, I, don't mean, I don't mean to muddy the waters too much here. But, um, you know, there is this idea, uh, like when, you, when we're looking at the Gospel of Thomas, and uh, some of those writings, and the people that followed this guy Valentinus, who came, who came, you know, a little bit later, uh, because Valentinus taught this kind of stuff, right? Val- Valentinus and and his followers, um, they were much more in line with uh, this idea of Jesus. That sort of starts with the Gospel of John, this identity of Jesus as co-equal with God, you know, one with the Father, the Logos of God. Um, and then the kind of things that Paul or pseudo Paul write about in Colossians and Ephesians that Christ is all and is in all, and we are filled with the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way and all of that. Um, so Valentinus, that's exactly what he was teaching. Okay. So I don't know if I mentioned this before, if I mentioned this in the Gospel of Thomas or not, but, uh, episode, but, um, but Valentinus, but Valentinus, Valentinus, however you pronounce it, um, uh, Valentinus, was a disciple of a guy named Theodos, and Theodos was a disciple of Paul. And so it's consistent with what we see in the in John, and then later in these other epistles of Paul. And again, it's this teaching that seems to come out of nowhere, to me anyway. It just seems like we're trucking along with Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and, um, and then that Messiah... 
becomes sort of the son of God. Well, what is that? That's that's sort of an elevated idea. And uh, and then it seems like to me anyway a big leap from that to maybe it's not, but it just to me it just seems like a big leap from that into what we see in the Gospel of John and then Colossians and Ephesians and uh, things like that. So. So again, the theory is, this is one of the theories anyway, the theory is that, um, that well, first of all, that Jesus did teach this uh, stuff. and um, But this, this may have been what they call some of the secret teachings. And, um, but whether, whether Jesus did or not, um, it seems that Paul did. <laughs> and, uh, or at least Paul eventually came around to this way of thinking. And, um, and Paul even talks about some secret teachings. There's places where he mentions, you know, things he has seen that no man can utter or, or things that he wishes he could tell uh, people, but they're not ready for it yet. They're still on the milk and, and he would like to move on to meat, but they're not ready. Um, those kinds of things that Jesus, that, sorry, that Paul says, um, suggests that there may have been a deeper level of teaching that wasn't made known to the crowds but might have been something that was passed on to direct disciples. So, you know, Jesus could have passed this on to some of the disciples. Frankly, if he told it to Peter, I could see where Peter didn't get it <laughs> or took a lot longer than the rest of them to get it. Um, but anyway, um, the, the idea is that, yeah, that, that this teaching kind of does come from Jesus and then it comes through Paul and then it's passed to Theotis and then, Eventually, it's something that Valentinus' teaching. And again, that kind of teaching, again, this idea of, of, of Jesus being Christ and Christ being this pre-existent being that is one with the Father, you know, that is this, this Christ who is, who is all and in all and fills everything in every way, and then, then therefore we are abiding in that same Christ and that Christ is abiding in us and all of that. Um, all of that is, is, is New Testament, by the way, right? All of that is some of this later, more advanced Christology that, that develops over time. And, um, it is the kind of thing that we do see in the New Testament, again, in Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, things like that, John. Um, and then it's consistent again with what we see from, uh, Valentinus and, this is exactly the kind of stuff he was teaching. This is stuff we see in the Gospel of Thomas um, and some other kind of earlier uh, texts. So the point is, we have today inherited a Christology of Jesus um, that took a while for people to get. It took a while for it to develop. It didn't all come out, you know, all at once. And um, I guess I... The point is, I, I guess, for me anyway, and this may be where sometimes I get in trouble, um, but I don't think that Revelation, that that the, um, I don't think we have it all figured out, you know. I, that's why I kind of wrote this, this book, Solo Mysterium, about the idea of uh, embracing mystery and recognizing that God is by definition a being that transcends all human comprehension, and therefore it's impossible for us to talk about this being with any degree or level of certainty. And because of that, I mean, I think we're always going to be developing 
our in our understanding of of Christ, right, and of God. So uh, I don't think we've. I would. How should I say it? I would not recommend that we stop at some point and say, "Okay, this is it. We're done," and it can only be this. Because I don't know. I think that's assuming a lot. I think that's assuming that we're a lot smarter than we think we are. Uh, I think God is still way bigger than our ability to fully, you know, grasp. And so I think it's a good thing that we move from Jesus as a rabbi and then as Messiah and then as son of God and then as Christ and then as Christ who is all and in all and and that this is something that we're continuing to meditate on and think about. And of course, again, I've said this before, to me, um, I start noticing how that way of thinking is something that has already uh, permeated other religions, other mystics and other religions, and uh, now is something that seems to having uh, some revelation and overlap in the quantum science realms, saying the exact same thing, this idea that um, that we are all one, we are all connected, there is no separation between me and you or anyone else, and that so there is there is a deep shared mysterious consciousness which i call christ um that that holds all things together that is that is in all that uh, that is that is in all and is all uh this christ who does literally fill everything not just every person everything in every way and uh this is really fascinating to me i really uh, I love this topic. Uh, I, I love, this is kind of personally where I'm at right now. Um, the more I'm studying uh, the Gospel of Thomas and, and digging into Valentinus and some of his writings and thinkings, uh, ways of thinking. And I'm actually teaching a course coming up this week for me, uh, for you probably listening to this. It's in the past. Um, but I've been teaching some courses uh, at the University of Texas at El Paso through their uh, advanced learning uh, education program. And I'm um, very excited about teaching a course on the Gospel of Thomas and hopefully having some good conversations with people about uh, about what we learn, you know, through this. Anyway, I hope I haven't taken you too far down the rabbit hole, boys and girls. Uh, I hope this isn't too scary to you, uh, this idea that, um, I, guess, I guess I should say too, you know, there's a really, really simple and practical um, conclusion, I guess, to all of this stuff too, which is that regardless of any of this, you and I still right now have an ability and a capacity to, to know and hear and experience Christ in an absolutely very, very real way at this very moment. You can, you can right now turn off this podcast Go go sit in your closet, shut the door, find a room in your house, or go drive somewhere out in the out in nature uh, alone, and just sit in silence and listen to the voice of God. And you can you can experience the presence of God. You can experience that Christ who is all and is in all that. You can experience this Christ who fills you and everything in every way. You can know this God who is love, and that those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. You can. You can experience that. You can know that. It's not just some theological study. 
it's not just some doctrine or theology that you write down and, and figure out in some systematic way. Uh, I don't think it's that at all. I don't think it ever has been or should be. I don't think it should ever be reduced to that. Um, and so, even if you don't understand what I'm saying, even if you're like, well, blah, blah, whatever, who cares? You know, Mark didn't figure it out, and then Matthew and Luke almost figured it out, and then John, well, okay, he figured it out, and then Paul, okay, he figured it out, and he wrote about it, and then Valentinus and other people started figuring it out, and other mystics figured it out, and and here we are today talking about it. Now quantum science is, is talking about the same thing. Uh, you know, if you're if you're sitting there going, so what? I'm with you. <laughs> yep, so what? You're right. Uh, the, the so what is this. Whatever that is, whoever this Christ is, this Christ is not far away. Because this Christ is in you and in me. And, um, and has made his home in us. That's a, I love that promise that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. That, that Christ and the Father have made their home in us. And so, again, the other promise is, right? My sheep hear my voice. And, and it's less about your ability or lack of ability to hear that voice. And I really think it's more about Christ's ability to make that voice known to anyone and everyone who is willing to put themselves in a position and a posture of waiting and listening and being still. I really do believe that. Those who seek will find. Those who knock the door will be opened. And um, maybe it will take a little bit longer for you than other people. Maybe you have to be more persistent than some other people. Um, and I also think it doesn't happen the same way for everybody. right? For me, for me, I can just sit in a quiet room or lay on my bed and shut the door or maybe put on some headphones or whatever, I, different ways. Um, or maybe just drive into my car and I can just suddenly, I can feel the presence of Christ and I, I know God is near and I can talk to God. But for you, maybe, you you know, you have to, there's some other um, sort of a way or a method or something, you know, that, that helps you. It could be music, it could be poetry, it could be meditation, it could be painting, it could be music, you know, playing your guitar, playing piano, um, taking a walk in nature, uh, whatever that looks like for you, gardening. Um, there's just all these different ways that we can encounter God. And um, I think that's the good news. I think that's the beautiful news. That whoever this God is, whatever whatever it is that Christ is completely and fully, and I don't think we fully understand it, but whatever it is, uh, I believe this Christ is deeply infatuated with us, loves us, cares for us wants to be known, is not far away. And uh, that's awesome. That's super exciting. So anyway, I hope you have a wonderful day today. I hope this podcast has encouraged you. If it has, would you do me a favor? Take some time and go over, I think, to Apple Podcasts. It's probably the best way to do it. And would you write, rate and review? I've got a few. I've only got like, I think, four actual reviews, like people typed out a review. That would mean so much to me if you would take some time and actually write out a review of what you think about this podcast. It helps other people who are searching for podcasts like this to find it and to read some reviews about it and say, okay, that sounds like something I want to listen to. And of course, please rate rate the podcast as well as review it. And then if you really want to bless me, if you really want to go the extra mile, wouldn't it be great if you could just share this episode 
on your social media, um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, um, and just let people know, hey, I this I this episode was really good. You should check it out. Maybe there's someone you'd think, you know, you know, I think someone would really love to hear this episode. Or maybe there's another episode we did that you think would be better. Whatever. But if you would share the episode uh, as well as rate and review, that would mean a lot as well. Uh, I also am still, I say this every time, if you have ideas, if you have topics and suggestions for things you'd like me to cover in upcoming episodes, please let me know. Um, sometimes it's hard to come up with ideas. So I love hearing from you guys. Uh, I love the feedback. And I certainly want to talk about things that you guys want to hear me talk about. So uh, let me know what that is. And I'd appreciate it. All right. I will see you out there, uh, boys and girls, hopefully anyway, uh, on social media. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Second Cup of Key. Bye-bye.